Hello and welcome to the October 18th Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to letting you know about what's new in Annals. In addition to several articles related to COVID-19, the new material covers a range of topics, so let's get right to it. Whether the diagnostic performance of rapid antigen tests for COVID-19 in detecting the Omicron variant differs from its performance in detecting Delta has been a question since Omicron emerged. The first article I'll highlight attempts to answer this question. The authors report a secondary analysis from a prospective cohort study that enrolled U.S. participants between October 18, 2021 and January 24, 2022, using a digital platform. Participants self-collected nasal swabs for rapid antigen tests and PCR tests every 48 hours for 15 days. All participants self-collected anterior nasal swabs for both the rapid antigen test and the PCR testing. All rapid antigen tests were completed at home while nasal swabs for PCR were shipped to a central lab. Of 7,349 participants enrolled in the parent study, 5,779 asymptomatic individuals who tested negative for SARS-CoV-2 on day one of the study were eligible for this sub-study. 207 participants were PCR positive, 58 for Delta, and 149 for Omicron. Differences in sensitivity between variants were not statistically significant. Among 109 participants who had PCR positive results for 48 hours, there were no significant differences in rapid antigen sensitivity between Delta and Omicron infected participants. 48-hour sensitivity for Delta was 81.5% versus 78% for Omicron. The researchers conclude the performance of rapid antigen testing varies based on duration of PCR positivity. While the testing frequency of 48 hours does not allow a finer temporal resolution of the analysis of test performance, these data suggest that performance of rapid antigen tests is not inferior in individuals infected with the SARS-CoV-2 Omicron variant compared to the Delta variant. Serial testing improved the sensitivity of rapid antigen tests for both variants. The effectiveness of a third mRNA COVID-19 vaccine, commonly referred to as a booster dose, against the Omicron variant is uncertain, especially in older high-risk populations. The next article reports a target trial emulation that aims to address this uncertainty. Using observational data from the Veterans Affairs Healthcare System, the researchers emulated a trial comparing booster vaccination versus no booster among persons who had received two mRNA COVID-19 vaccine doses at least five months earlier. Each group included 490,838 well-matched persons, predominantly male, with a mean age of 63 years, followed for up to 121 days. Vaccine effectiveness after booster was 42.3% against SARS-CoV-2 infection, 53.3% against SARS-CoV-2-related hospitalization, and 79.1% against SARS-CoV-2-related death. Vaccine effectiveness was similar for both mRNA vaccines age groups, or primary vaccination regimens, but was significantly higher with longer time since primary vaccination and with higher comorbidity burden. These data, obtained from a predominantly male population, showed that booster mRNA vaccination was highly effective in preventing death and moderately effective in preventing infection and hospitalization for up to four months after administration in the Omicron era. 
These findings support increased uptake of booster vaccination, which is currently suboptimal, to limit the morbidity and mortality of SARS-CoV-2 infection, especially in persons with high comorbidity burden. A new American College of Physicians position paper says that indigenous populations in the U.S. suffer significant barriers and disparities in healthcare, due in part to the federal government failing to provide adequate health support and services for these communities. Indigenous populations experience high rates of chronic diseases, death due to unintentional and intentional injury, and infant mortality. The American College of Physicians argues that these poor health outcomes have arisen in part from the historical trauma associated with decades of racism, discrimination, and violence, subsequent poor social drivers of health, the degradation of indigenous traditions, culture, and society, and inadequate access to and chronic insufficient funding of healthcare services for indigenous populations. The American College of Physicians offers several recommendations for policymakers at the federal level to strengthen the health and well-being of indigenous populations in a manner that reflects the need for self-determination and collaboration while ensuring federal obligations are met. Go to annals.org to read the recommendations, which include increased funding for health services for indigenous people, community-driven public policy developed under the leadership of indigenous leaders, and improved support to prioritize health and wellness promotion, chronic disease prevention, and other public health interventions addressing morbidities with high incidence in indigenous communities. Next is the report of a cohort study of more than 1 million people that found that most persons screened for lung cancer meet U.S. Preventive Services Task Force criteria, but men, persons who formerly smoked, and younger eligible patients are less likely to be screened. Adherence to follow-up screening was also poor. In 2013, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommended annual lung cancer screening using low-dose computed tomography for the first time in adults aged 55 to 80 years who had a smoking history of at least 30 pack years and currently smoked or quit within the past 15 years. The initial criteria for eligibility included approximately 8 million Americans. In 2021, the task force expanded eligibility for screening, nearly doubling the size of the eligible population. The researchers studied the first million people to receive lung cancer screening and be entered into the lung cancer screening registry. The authors analyzed data collected between 2015 and 2019 from 3,625 facilities reporting to the registry. They found that 90.8% of persons screened met the 2013 USPSTF criteria. Compared with the eligible U.S. population, screened persons were older, more likely to be female, and more likely to currently smoke. The data also showed that adherence to annual follow-up screening is low, which may reduce cost-effectiveness and diminish the mortality benefits. As such, providers should emphasize with patients that screening in those eligible should be performed yearly. An accompanying editorial highlights some of the sobering findings from the study and suggests ways for clinicians to improve national lung cancer screening rates and reduce deaths. The author recommends that physicians take complete smoking histories from patients, not refer patients to screenings when they are not likely to benefit, and work with their healthcare systems to ensure higher adherence to screening follow-ups. The editorial also touches on the importance of focusing screening messaging efforts on eligible patients from historically underserved populations. Continuing on the topic of cancer screening, a pooled analysis evaluating the 15-year effect of sigmoidoscopies 
has found that receiving one sigmoidoscopy significantly reduces long-term incidence of colorectal cancer in both men and women. Colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer worldwide, with more than 1.9 million new cases and more than 930,000 deaths each year. Sigmoidoscopy and colonoscopy screening provide an opportunity for colorectal cancer reduction by detecting early cancer and removing premalignant polyps. However, there has been uncertainty as to how long the benefits of sigmoidoscopy screening last and whether the benefits vary by sex. Researchers from Norway, the United States, Italy, and the United Kingdom conducted an analysis of four randomized trials comprising more than 274,000 participants over a follow-up period of a minimum of 15 years, comparing sigmoidoscopy screening to usual care. The data showed that persons screened at least once experienced a 21% reduction in colorectal cancer incidence compared to usual care. The data also showed that receiving at least one screening reduced colorectal cancer-related mortality by 20% and all-cause mortality by 2%. The colorectal cancer screening incidence varied by gender, with men experiencing a 25% incidence reduction and women experiencing a 16% incidence reduction. According to the authors, possible explanations for the colorectal cancer incidence difference between men and women include differences in the quality of bowel preparation, more technically challenging procedures in women, and a higher incidence and larger proportion of proximal colon cancer in women. And in a new Animals Beyond the Guideline feature, a primary care physician and a gastroenterologist discuss the recommendation to begin colorectal cancer screening at age 45. All Beyond the Guidelines features are based on the Department of Medicine Grand Rounds at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and include print, video, and educational components, all available on annals.org. Colorectal cancer is diagnosed most frequently among persons aged 65 to 74 years. However, among persons younger than 50 years, incidence rates have been increasing since the mid-1990s. In 2021, the United States Preventive Services Task Force recommended colorectal cancer screening for adults aged 45 to 49 years. USPSTF does not recommend a specific screening test. The discussants in this Beyond the Guidelines Grand Rounds were Dr. Carol Mangione, Chair of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, as well as Chief of the Division of General Internal Medicine and Health Services Research at David Geffen Medical School, and Dr. David Weinberg, Chair of the Department of Medicine at Fox Chase Cancer Center and a professor of medicine at Temple University Medical School. They debated the case of Ms. N, a 44-year-old woman who is deciding about possible colorectal cancer screening options after receiving a recommendation from her doctor that she begin screening at age 45 instead of age 50. In their assessments, Drs. Mangione and Weinberg agreed that Ms. N should pursue the screening test she is most likely to agree to have performed. This consensus is in line with the current U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendations, but Dr. Weinberg notes that there are no age-specific empirical data regarding screening effectiveness and that in younger populations, the false positive rates, especially for stool-based testing, are likely higher and cost-effectiveness relatively lower. Dr. Mangione agrees with the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendation that Ms. N should be screened at 45 rather than 50 because the task force determined that screening adults aged 45 to 49 provides moderate benefit for reducing colorectal cancer mortality and increasing life years gained. 
However, Dr. Weinberg is concerned that there is no direct evidence to support that persons 45 to 49 years of age will derive the same benefit from colorectal cancer screening as older persons. The discussants also agree that reaching the 80% screening rate goal for persons aged 50 to 74 years is critically important as clinicians start thinking about screening those 45 to 49 years of age, and that we simultaneously identify and address barriers to screening the broader population. Although apixaban and rivaroxaban are commonly used to prevent stroke in patients with atrial fibrillation and valvular heart disease, there is limited evidence comparing the two drugs in these patients. Using a commercial health insurance database from January 1, 2013 to December 31, 2020, the authors of the next article compared new users of apixaban or rivaroxaban, 9,947 taking each drug, who had a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation and valvular heart disease prior to the initiation of anticoagulation. When compared with rivaroxaban, apixaban was associated with a lower rate of ischemic stroke or systemic embolism and bleeding. The absolute reduction in the probability of stroke or systemic embolism with apixaban compared with rivaroxaban was 0.0026 within six months and 0.011 within one year of treatment initiation. The absolute reduction in the probability of bleeding events with apixaban compared with rivaroxaban was 0.012 within six months and 0.019 within one year of treatment initiation. Limitations of the study include the relatively short follow-up time and inability to ascertain some types of valvular heart disease, but these data suggest that among patients with atrial fibrillation and valvular heart disease, Patients taking apixaban had a lower risk of ischemic stroke or systemic embolism and of bleeding when compared with patients taking rivaroxaban. Next is a systematic review that aimed to assess the trajectory of mental health symptoms during the first year of the pandemic and examine dose-response relations with characteristics of the pandemic and its containment. The authors identified relevant studies in the COVID-19 Open Access Projects Living Evidence Database which indexes COVID-19-related publications for Medline via PubMed, Embase via Ovid, and PsycInfo. Preprint publications were not considered, and eligible studies were longitudinal studies reporting data on the general population's mental health using validated scales and published before the 31st of March, 2021. In a total of 43 studies, including 331,628 participants, the authors found that changes in symptoms of psychological distress, sleep disturbances, and mental well-being varied substantially across studies. On average, depression and anxiety symptoms worsened in the first two months of the pandemic. Thereafter, the trajectories were very heterogeneous. They identified a linear association between worsening of depression and anxiety with increasing numbers of reported SARS-CoV-2 cases and increasing stringency of government measures. Gender, age, country, deprivation, inequalities, risk of bias, and study design did not modify these associations. The certainty in the evidence was low because of the high risk of bias in the included studies and the large amount of heterogeneity. Stringency measures and surge in cases were strongly correlated and changed over time, and the observed associations should not be interpreted as causal. The authors conclude that while they found an initial increase in average symptoms of depression and anxiety and an association between higher numbers of reported cases and more stringent measures, 
after the first two months of the pandemic, changes in mental health symptoms varied substantially across studies, suggesting that different populations responded very differently to the psychological stress generated by the pandemic and its containment measures. The next article is another systematic review. This one evaluates the comparative effectiveness and harms of opioids versus non-opioid analgesics, or placebo, for treating musculoskeletal pain in the emergency department. The authors searched through February 2022 for randomized controlled trials of any opioid analgesic compared with placebo or non-opioid analgesic administered or prescribed to adults within or on discharge from the emergency department to treat musculoskeletal pain. Pain and disability were presented on a 0 to 100 scale, pooled using a random effects model. The certainty of evidence was assessed using the GRADE framework. The author's search identified 42 trials, including 6,614 participants. Within the emergency department, opioids were statistically but not clinically more effective in reducing pain in the short term, under two hours, than placebo or acetaminophen but not more clinically or statistically effective than non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or local or systemic anesthetics. Opioids appear to have a higher risk of harms compared with placebo, acetaminophen, and NSAIDs, although evidence is very uncertain. The quality of the available studies was poor, and the authors conclude that the short-term risk-benefit of opioids versus placebo, acetaminophen, and local or systemic anesthetics and NSAIDs remains uncertain. Opioids may have equivalent pain outcomes compared to NSAIDs, but evidence on comparisons of harms is very uncertain and heterogeneous. Further study is needed to identify which subgroups will have a greater benefit-risk balance for one analgesic treatment over the other and for the effectiveness and safety of longer-term pain management. If you go to annals.org, in addition to the full article, you'll find a brief video summarizing the review. Insulin prices in the U.S. are far higher than in other nations. Pharmaceutical firms have raised insulin prices year upon year, even for products that remain unchanged. Insulin is life-saving for many patients with diabetes, but high prices and inadequate insurance coverage may impede access to it in the U.S. A single-center study in web-based surveys suggested that cost-related insulin non-adherence may be common, but reliable national data have been lacking. Next is a brief research report that aims to determine the prevalence and correlates of insulin rationing in the U.S. using data from the 2021 National Health Interview Survey. The survey asked adult insulin users whether in the past 12 months they skipped insulin doses, took less insulin than needed, or delayed buying insulin to save money. Any positive response indicated rationing. The study included 982 diabetic insulin users representing 1.4 million adults with type 1, 5.8 million with type 2, and 0.4 million with other or unknown diabetes type. 16.5% of insulin users reported rationing insulin in the past year, which extrapolates to 1.3 million diabetic adults nationwide. Among all insulin users, delaying purchase was the most common form of rationing. Among those with type 1, taking less than needed was common. Insulin rationing varied among subgroups. 11.2% of adults aged 65 and older rationed versus 20.4% of younger individuals. 10.8% of higher income individuals reported rationing versus 19.8% of middle and 14.6% of low income persons. 
Among black individuals, 23.2% rationed insulin compared to 16% of white and Hispanic persons. 29.2% of uninsured persons rationed insulin, the highest rate of rationing, followed by 18.8% of those with private insurance, 13.5% with Medicare, and 11.6% with Medicaid. Before insulin's discovery a century ago, a diabetes diagnosis could be a death sentence, especially for type 1 diabetes. The inventor sold the initial insulin patent for $1, yet today more than 1 million Americans ration insulin. Although rationing was most frequent among the uninsured, it was also common among adults with private coverage, which often requires higher cost sharing than public insurance. By limiting insulin copays to $35 per month under Medicare, the 2022 Inflation Reduction Act may improve insulin access for seniors who experienced substantial rationing in this study. However, a similar cap for the privately insured was removed from the bill, and copay caps do not aid the uninsured. Further reform is needed to improve access to insulin for all Americans. Unhealthy alcohol use, the consumption of alcohol above a level that has caused or has the potential to cause physical, psychological, or social consequences, is common, associated with a range of adverse health and social consequences, underrecognized and undertreated. For example, data from the 2020 National Survey on Drug Use and Health indicated that 7% of adults reported heavy alcohol use in the past month, and only 4.2% of adults with alcohol use disorder received treatment. Primary care is an important setting for optimizing screening and treatment of unhealthy alcohol use to promote individual and public health. This month's In the Clinic Review addresses the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of unhealthy alcohol use. Also new is the latest episode of Annals Consult Guys. This episode focuses on the perioperative management of hypertension. There are also two new episodes of Annals on Call, one on monkeypox and the other on variability of estimates of glomerular filtration rate when compared to measured GFR. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I encourage you to go to annals.org for a closer look at some of the new articles I've highlighted here. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support.